it, when you're doing the act of innovating, you're naturally going to be encountering things that other people might have not before or quite in that in that way before. So, you know, I think having a network to address things as they come up sometimes is mm. more powerful than, than, than over preparing before they do. Welcome back to the Purpose Innovates podcast. This is where I invite leaders in the global startup ecosystem to talk about the purpose of their projects, encouraging a discussion about where tech is going and why. If you find something interesting in the show, please follow me on Spotify and subscribe on YouTube. I also encourage you to share this episode with your friends. Prem Kumar is the CEO and founder of Humanly, a Y Combinator backed, fast growing tech startup that is dedicated to helping organizations bring efficiency and equity into their hiring process. We're going to talk about what it's like to be a founder of a new fast growing startup. And we also look at the importance of bringing equity and efficiency into the hiring process in the digital age. Please enjoy this episode. Really, at the end of the day, um, we're trying to make hiring more equitable and more efficient. Um, so we're particularly targeting job types where you're getting hundreds and hundreds of resumes. So this is, uh, you know, entry level operation support sales. Um, you might get 300 resumes um, and you hire one person. Um, but you still have the opportunity to engage with, with the rest of the 299 as you build your pipeline. So we're really allowing you to engage at scale. Um, but our, our one-liner is we automate job candidate screening, scheduling, and engagement at scale. And so how, how far along do you take that process to um, – because there's multiple – screening levels typically especially with something like you just described with 300 applicants i've done job um applications where there's one interview there's another interview first one was totally digital second one had a person so how far into that process do you take um people you service yeah yeah good question um so as of right now um we're kind of at the top of the funnel. So at the beginning, we'll do the very initial screen. Um, oftentimes that might be a phone screen currently being done by a recruiting coordinator. Um, but, but then we stop um, before the interview itself. So we will take you to screening. Um, for those that um, pass through screening, we'll allow them to then schedule time with, usually it's like a hiring manager um, for, for the next step in the process. Um, we're actually, it's good timing for this question because we're we're now finding that really that the our goal at the end of the day is to automate what we feel can be automated but help people be more efficient at the areas that we don't feel should be automated um i feel that it, you know it is a very human driven process so one example of that is the interview itself after you do a screen um but what we would like to do is is we're coming out with a product right now that we're betaing um, that will sit in on Zoom calls like this on Google Hangout calls and give feedback to interviewers to help them become better. So, for example, if someone is interviewing a candidate and they're speaking too quickly over 150 words per minute, that's not great for um, different types of candidates, particularly if English is a second language. Um, so there's a lot of insights and and. Um, I guess note taking and things like that that we feel can happen in interview. We so we're moving, I guess, a little further down um, down the chain there. Okay, interesting. Very cool. Um, and this is a this is relatively new in terms of we're all navigating this this new, very digitalized and virtualized work experience, application experience, the whole work world is newly um, very digitalized now. And what, what sort of problems does that bring up for companies who, like you said, are, are hiring, you know, they're getting 300 applications for a job posting. Um, they could be coming from all around the world um, what problem do, do you help these companies face? Yeah, it's, it's a great question and things are definitely 
changing um, with this with the more digital world and you know right now too with unemployment unfortunately high um, you also see candidate volume um, so instead of 300 resumes maybe it's 600 so you're getting tons and tons of applications and like you said it can be um, from anywhere um, so so I think the one problem is just how do you engage with large quantities of people at scale, um, you know, across time zones, across um, other factors. So how, how do you keep that engagement at scale? So for example, if you were, and I, I think we're seeing some good examples of how that can be done in sales and marketing. And I'm, and now we're trying to bring that into talent acquisition. So, you know, if I were to tell a, a sales professional, professional or marketer that, hey, you're going to get 600 uh, leads, uh, customer leads per day. Um, they'd be pretty happy if, if they were getting less than that. But I, I guarantee they certainly have the tools to be able to engage with all potential customers. Um, unfortunately, now people on hiring teams don't have the tools necessarily to engage at scale with um, with all candidates. So what, what's happened, and I can kind of explain how this has changed in the digital world, but what's happened up to now is there's research saying that, um, you know, only 20% or so of candidates ever get to a human or the average, you know, hiring team members spend seven seconds per resume. So what's happening is you're not giving each of those 300 candidates um, uh, enough of a look. Um, and I think in the digital world, it's just, it's become so much easier um, to apply to jobs. So you have a quick apply buttons on like Indeed or ZipRecruiter. And because it's the barrier to apply is so low in this digital mm -hmm. world, it's it's very easy. So you can apply to 30 jobs, 40 jobs. Um, but what's that's causing on the other side is recruiters don't have the same tools to be able to engage with everyone that applies at scale. And we're seeing that happen even more so in this digital world. So one problem is just time and then not having time to engage with everyone and that then leads to other problems like bias or you know not finding the right one maybe by the time you get to the 280th resume the best candidate has already left um, or found another job so i really do think we need to do more be more efficient with how we scale and, and um, make better use of our time um with the digital process like on linkedin for example you might be able to do a one-click application um to a job because your resume is already in there, it imports it all. And then other, other platforms too make that process very smooth. So that might naturally increase the amount of people who are applying to a given job because they can do it so easily. And then um, what that does is also makes the, the people processing all that information, the recruiters, they have less time to focus on each person it's almost, it could be a kind of a runaway effect where people are sending in more and more applications. Each application is getting less and less attention, which means you need to send out even more to get that, to increase your likelihood. And so I really like that name of, of humanly as trying to maybe bring back like some of the human elements that let's make this more efficient and also, you talk a lot about the like the importance of the equity process there. Um, so is that is that part of the issue is trying to bring um, more, more human element back into what has become sort of like a numbers game almost? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think if um, if you were to talk to when we did our interviews for this, as you're talking to people on hiring teams, whether that's a recruiter or recruiting coordinator, um, maybe a hiring manager. I, I think if they had unlimited time, money and resources, every candidate interaction would start with, with a conversation. And, um, and I, I think that can be done at, at scale now in, in certain ways, whether it's a conversation you have with a piece of technology or, or with, with a human. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I, and I, and I think, you know, there's, amazing recruiters and recruiting coordinators out there. I, I don't think they're currently equipped with the tools um, th that maybe folks in sales or marketing are to be able to do that right now. I see two, um, there's two groups of people I see that you are kind of really um, influencing. It's like there's the recruiter and there's the candidates. So one thing I'm curious about is how does your 
development of the product and your service have to balance those two entities and is there ever is there ever a give and take where you feel like one of those groups either the candidate or the employer is sort of would prefer the app to function in one way but then it would take from the other group's satisfaction with the experience yeah so i think um i guess one thing i'll start with is yeah, it certainly is a balance and, and there are some some trade-offs. Um, candidate experience is, is really important to what we're doing. We actually, at the end of each interaction that a candidate has with our tool, they can rate the experience and we publish all of those live on our site with, with, with permission, of course, and removing private information. But um, but yeah, so it's it's been in really interesting to see how a lot of, I guess what surprised me is there are some examples where you are making those trade-offs and I can give some examples, but what surprised me is that a lot of the stuff works that works for one side also makes the process better for for the other side um, you know I think a part of um, screening candidates and usually when I think about screening I prefer to look at this as screening people in versus screening them out um, and I, what I find too is that candidates themselves also they're, they're screening a company in or out so they want more information um, they want to be able to ask questions about the job so I think with technologies like ours you can kind of fulfill both of those um, with some of the I guess some of the trade-off pieces I mean I, it, I think there are some like role specific things so um, I, you know, it, there's, it's like right now with 80% of job candidates not hearing anything back, talking to a piece of technology is better than than not talking to, to anyone and not being able to get your questions answered. So we are, we do provide that. Um, but I do feel like really if we can, what everyone wants, both the candidate and the recruiter is to have that the human part of the conversation start as fast as possible. So what we do is we'll reduce the time it takes to get the right candidate to the right recruiter. Um, so I think that's better for everyone. Um, you know, I think obviously there's, um, with a lot of these jobs, there's a lot of people aren't going to get the job and um, the, the, especially in these high volume jobs, most people will not get the job. Um, so I, I do think there is some scenarios there with how we um, let people um, know they didn't get it. That uh, obviously on the candidate side you don't don't want to get that email, but on the recruiter side you want to be efficient. Now you get that out. So there probably mm -hmm. are things we can do a little better there. So it's everyone feels good. But then also, how do we keep in touch with you for the next job? So that's something that recruiters really want. Um, candidates, I think, generally want that if it's not in an, in an annoying way. So we're not going to be sending you emails like every time. The, there's a new job, but what we might do is check in every three months, six months, 12 months and say, hey, Chris, you know, are you still um, living in Colorado? Are you interested? Are you still interested in work? Um, so I think that that balance, sometimes recruiters might want more error on the side of more communication and sometimes candidates that are passive might want it in a little bit different way. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. Um, and I see that. Um, Personally, I think it's really nice when you do get a, even if it's just a little email, because it helps you manage the process. And this is coming from the candidate experience. It's, it's a nice gesture, even if I know it's automated or whatever extent, you know, whatever, however it comes, having a closure element is nice. And I think personally, I'm just speculating here um, from personal anecdotal evidence, but it puts a better picture of the company in my mind. And um, so I see that as like a, an important kind of element that that's something um, humanly could help um, just as one little feature that would help improve the candidate experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, and a lot of times too, in addition to it being the right thing to do, um, there's um, bottom line revenue you can drive from it. So um, one example is uh, um, I was talking to someone who worked at Disney and the average, this 
was pre-COVID, but the average uh, person who applied to a job at Disney um, generally spent about eight times more than the average customer at Disney Park. So your candidates are also sometimes the biggest fans of your brand already. Um, and, you know, by giving them a bad experience, you're giving some of your best customers a bad experience. If it's a B2C company, um, there is another study that um, I, I think it was, um, um, it wasn't Verizon, maybe it was Virgin America or one of a large company, but they basically did a study saying that um, about six to 7% of candidates they rejected would stop using them and go to a competitor. Um, so I think if you uh, handle that as a relationship in, in a better way, you um, also have bottom line impacts because candidates, you know, they can be future candidates, they can be brand advocates, they can be customers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to touch on a, a very important point here. Going to college and, and being in a, like I would say, a pretty, a pretty um, progressively thinking thought sphere, it's easy for me to kind of jump the gun on some of these important issues like, like equity. Um, and so can you speak a little bit about what can happen maybe um, in the normal process that leaves certain people who have a lot to offer to the company, they might be the best person for the job, but because of like certain biases or because of elements of the screening process, they are not getting picked up um, by the company and how, and particularly how humanly kind of helps mediate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great topic. Um, so when we were doing our kind of customer research and interviews before we built the product, we sat down with a lot of folks. And I remember one that one that stood out. Um, he was um, sight impaired, and um, he literally couldn't apply at certain companies that used a particular video interviewing technology because it would mark him as a, a worse. Uh, communicator because he wasn't making eye contact um, um, because he couldn't control his, his gestures or his, where he was looking as much. So there's a lot of, a lot of stories we heard like that or talking to someone with autism um, spectrum disorder, um, phone interviews can sometimes be more tough. Um, and then you also see uh, ZipRecruiter did a study saying that about 70% of job descriptions in the U.S. will use um, male gendered language like he um, or him and, and maybe less less obvious examples as well but if you just use the right language you all of a sudden get 40 percent or something more more applicants so I think there's a lot of different ways um, I mean I think it starts with base with what should be basic um, unfortunately it isn't yet but with, with general accessibility so building a process that everyone can be involved in um, so you know if if you have um, if you have like a maybe a job application process um, that someone's filling out online, um, digital now, for folks that are sight impaired, you want to set it up so that screen readers like JAWS, um, which is a type of screen reader, can read to them what's on the screen. So I think just making it so that so starting with accessibility, um, which should be table stakes for, for any technology. Um, but then um, the conversation itself. So what, what, what words are you using? Are, are you focusing on things that are predictive of success or not? So we will look at data post hire and say, hey, we know in this market for this industry, um, in this role, the difference between four to five years of experience is not necessarily predictive of someone being successful, but what might be is coachability. So, um, and, and for this role, you might not pay as much attention to, um, to those di- the small differences in experience. So I think that that's one way um, to do it. And, you know, there's obviously studies out there talking about, you know, if we, so what one thing we can do is we can hide someone's name or in some cases where they went to school, things that we feel are not necessarily that could cause bias, but aren't predictive of whether that person will be successful. So we can hide that. So a recruiter has more of a blind um, um, view. Um, but then in our, the product we're betaing now, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, yeah, helping that translate to what happens inside the interview. So are you um, being more patient with uh, 
um, senior candidates more than junior candidates. We can measure how patient one per person is based on a call transcript of the interview. Are you um, interrupting certain types of candidates more? Are you um, speaking? Like one example with me is I, I tried our tool on myself and I found that when I was interviewing engineers um, versus product managers, um, my background's in products, so I'm more out of my comfort zone when I'm interviewing engineers. And I found that I would actually just talk for like 75% of the call and ask less questions. Um, so we can monitor that and run a report um, with, with the tool that we're working on now. But, but yeah, I think there's a lot, we're, we're certainly not solving this whole problem by ourselves. Um, there's a lot of parts of the process, but we're trying to do some of that. And so where, where are you right now in terms of working on new products, um, finding development, um, of the product and the product market fit versus sort of scaling things up and at humanly on an operational level, where is the, what is the main, um, focus right now? Is it development of the product or is it scaling up, um, the, into the marketplace or is it both? And how are you balancing that as the CEO? Yeah, um, definitely all, all of the above, all, all the time, all at once. Um, okay. I think um, so. I, we, we're starting to get. We, we found with our core product um, some really strong kind of product market fit indicators, and we feel pretty good about where we're at in terms of the core product, saving time um, in the top of the hiring funnel. Um, with this next piece, I, I wouldn't even necessarily consider it a separate product, but an extension of what we're doing now is, you know, in addition to automating what we can, we're now providing analytics to help people um, with areas that we don't feel should be automated. So that piece of the offering is, is newer, um, the, the in-interview one um, that we're betaing right now. Um, so a lot, lot of time on the product development side, for sure, um, on the engineering side. Um, one thing that's really core to us is always being integrated. So we don't want to be a separate tool that you have to sign into. Um, so with our core product, if once you set it up, you don't have to sign into it if you have an existing like applicant tracking system. Um, so integrations are always on our roadmap. Um, but yeah, we definitely have to balance that with um, growth. Uh, you know, the um, one, one thing is about our product, in addition to growth driving revenue, growth also brings us more data. And in many ways, we're, we're a data company. We use the data to, we don't share it with between customers, but for individual customers, it makes the experience much better. Um, so, so that's, uh, you know, um, growth is important in many regards, in addition to growing the business. Um, mm. So yeah, I would say my time is uh, spent um, really on kind of the sales marketing side with with our team. So we, my co-founders on the sales side, and then um, we have a new head of marketing, Bennett, um, that, that I'm that we I spend quite a bit of time with. And then on the other side, it's really really product, and um, and then and then I think the the most important piece, which ties into all of the above, is spending as much time as I can with our customers. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, and, and let's talk about the type of customer that is really um, an ideal user and who's crushing it with humanly. Yeah. So it's generally um, mid-sized companies, uh, fair, fairly high growth in some cases, um, but they have jobs that fit into three criteria. So the first criteria is those jobs get high applicant volume. So again, this is, you know, mainly entry to mid-level um, roles like, like sales support operations. Um, so do they have those jobs is one thing. Um, the second is roles that have high turnover. Um, so, and a lot of those are are very similar um, roles where it's not just, you know, you're hiring someone, but it's in some ways a revolving door where people are not going to be there for five years. Um, and then the third kind of criteria is that they have pretty repetitive screening processes. So we're seeing particular industries where there's a lot of this. So like generally like high growth SaaS companies in general, uh, financial services, um, some parts of healthcare um, uh, tend to resonate most. Um, so that, that's kind of the customers I think that are 
seeing the most value. Really, we measure value in how much time are we saving you? Are we getting the right recruiter, the right that right candidate to the right recruiter faster? Um, and then the candidate experience piece. So the ones that are knocking it out of the park from those metric standpoints tend to be the ones that fit within that set of criteria. Mm. And that just brought up another idea for me is I hear a lot about this notion. I've talked with other people on the show about this idea of sort of a more fluid um, career path for people. Um, some people's roles could almost be almost freelance style when, but they're in-house. And so um, is that kind of part of this transition is like this, this needs to be built out. These tools need to be built out because for both candidates and employers, we are going to be, generally more fluid in our career paths. Is that part of the demand here? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Um, I, I've spent some time thinking about this and it's, it, it is really interesting in a lot of ways. So first off, I think, yeah, movement is going to be more and more common. Um, Reskilling is, is also going to be common where, you know, you might even be moving into something that's much different than what you did before. Um, particularly, you know, as, of jobs are moving to remote, not all of them, but um, many are. Um, and, you know, I think you're no longer limited to working at a, a company that has an office nearby where you live. So, so there's going to be more options as well. Um, so my, my whole thing is, I think companies need to be okay with, with movement. Um, it's it's um, a kind of the old school way of thinking is, you know, let's lock all the doors so no one leaves. Um, but really, I think it's more about creating such an engaging work environment that no one maybe wants to leave in the first place. But um, so, and, and because I kind of look at how much value you get from an employee as what I would call employee lifetime value, where if you have um, an, an awesome employee for one year um, and they, but they were engaged that entire year and you onboarded them quickly, it's actually better for you than if you had a, a, um, someone for two years who wasn't engaged, who maybe took, you spent a long time onboarding them. So the value you get from that one person is not just based on how long they stay. I, I think people look at tenure as even for high performers, there's a lot of high performers that are not engaged. Um, so from our, our company's standpoint, what we do is we plug into those post hire systems. So we're able to get some of these data sets saying that, hey, you know, Chris stayed for a while and this other person, this other group of folks were very, um, you know, central to the, to the company from a network standpoint. These people were great communicators. And um, in that example, I, I Put your name in there but it's actually not on an individual basis that we do that when we look at like cohorts of of groups so this mm -hmm. this part of the organization may um but but yeah i think it's important to and movement is a necessary thing and i i, I don't think we should be afraid of turnover mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well yeah if you can get a um if you improve the efficiency of the process then it's, it's, it's less, that's less of a pain point is tur turnover is less of a pain point. If you, if you improve the efficiency and then, and also let's say you as a company and I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm in honestly no place to speak about these theoretical things, but let's say you have a company who is, um, you know, they're, they're allocating a certain amount of time and resources to the hiring process. If you improve efficiency, um, but they still say, you know, we can still give this many time and resources, this much um, effort, then the efficiency um, allows them to maybe increase quality. If you see what I'm saying is, um, yeah, yeah as, as, as efficiency increases and you still have the amount, you still have the budget for it, then you can increase quality on that hiring process. And, and like you said, um, you know, that is a less turnover is a less scary process when, when you can bring in um, someone um, who's going to do a great job um, more easily. Yeah, absolutely. Like if I can tell you that, hey, we're going to save you 64 hours 
per roll and, 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 and take that off your plate. You certainly can use that time to spend more time with the candidates, um, have interviews that are of high quality, and, and that all does, does lead to quality. And, and, and you're also able to, with efficiency, um, you know, if you're, if you're getting 300 resumes, it's pretty uh, unlikely that in one sitting or in one day you're going to get through all of them. So I think if we're able to add efficiency. You're able to engage if that maybe it's the 299th person that's the best candidate. Um, if you're able to get out quicker, quality can also increase. Um, you know, I had I had one um, pretty senior recruiting director tell me that, you know, in his entire 20 year career, he doesn't think that out of the, these high volume jobs when they're going through 300 resumes that they ever hired one of the top three, four or five best people there. He said, because we we're just going so fast, it's mm. probably someone else that we just never got to. Um, we just did our best. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, that's an interesting point. Mm. How does, how does the equity element bring value to the company? I, I can, I can make an argument for it, but I'd like to hear what you think. Like, is that, that's something that is not just altruistic, but, but it can bring value to the company in meaningful ways. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. And I, the way I kind of look at it is, you know, at the end of the day, we're helping you build a better team more efficiently and um, better teams are teams that are more diverse, that are representative of, of many different um, walks of life. So if I were to tell you, hey, you can only, you're only allowed to hire from this group of folks, you're probably going to have a worse team than if you talk to everyone um, and engage with everyone in an in a, in a accessible and efficient way. So I think... Um, you know, we're helping you have teams that are more representative of your customers and the world at large. Um, so there's, and there's a lot of like studies that show like the correlation in terms of dollar value, dollars um, with, with more diverse teams with like, for example, at Microsoft, we, when I was at Microsoft prior, um, we, and as with many tech companies are, engineering um we we and microsoft i mean tech companies are still this is still a huge problem but mm. um it was basically all men on, on the, that were engineers and very few um um women so so i think that, and and then when that changed you all of a sudden you started to see uh all kinds of improvements in, in terms of mm. efficiency and bottom line so i think you have to make a conscious effort to you know you can use tools like us to help you get more candidates that are diverse and engage with more people but then there's also to the work of inclusivity and other things you have to do um, once you hire someone. So I do think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a problem we're alone solving, but, but an important one. Cool. And I'd love to get back just to the, to the origin a little bit of, of, of your founding of this company. Um, what, what sort of, what was the beginning? Like what, how did this start? And when did you see like, Oh, this is a, I can, I can make something here. Like, let's go for it. Yeah, I guess kind of um, to further the, the equity point, like when I, I guess the first time it popped into my head. Um, so when I was graduating from University of Washington here in Seattle, I, I remember it was the economy was really good at the time. And we were getting all these interviews. And I, I remember I went into an interview at a company a I'll call them um and uh my counterpart um also uh um was interviewing for the same job and it was with the exact same interview panel and mm -hmm. and we and and she uh she happened to be uh she, she was much smarter than me much better grades and and much more technical than I was but when we compared the compared the questions we were being asked it was like like completely different. Like they asked me mm -hmm. very few technical questions. Um, more, most of my questions were around my communication skills and then her, they were grilling her on the technical questions. So it just seemed like, it mm -hmm. just seemed like there was something funky about it. So it made me realize that I, I just don't, and I don't think it's necessarily anything, um, maybe an unconscious bias thing, but I just felt that, um, 
there was weren't the kind of tools in place um, first to do things in equitable way, but also just to handle things at scale. So, you know, a lot of companies I applied to, I never heard anything back. And, you know, you put in so much time as a candidate where, you know, when I applied to, to Google, for instance, I really wanted to work there. And, you know, I was telling my family I might move to, to Mountain View. And it's a big life decision for a candidate to want to apply to a company. Um, and then, um, and then obviously, and I never heard back, but, um, but, so, but literally the reason I mentioned that is now when I get messaged by recruiters there, like literally, even though that was so long ago, it's like, I still remember that experience. So, mm. um, I think um, candidate experience was high on my mind, but then if you fast forward, you know, to, to like a couple of years ago, I, I, I finally started to see that there was technologies and sales and marketing that helped people engage at scale. But, um, and I worked, when I worked at a company called Tiny Pulse, I got to speak with a lot of customers and um, Tiny Pulse is in the HR tech space as well. And I saw really for these mid-market companies where they're hiring and the volume's super high, um, they just don't didn't have the tools they, they were equipped to equip them to do that. So my co-founder at Tiny Pulse, I'm sorry, my co-founder at Humanly, I met at Tiny Pulse um, where I was, he was on the sales team and I was running product. And, you know, that that's probably where we realized there was something there. But the candidate experience part's always kind of been in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That, that, that sort of connects to sort of a, like a, uh, yeah, an important broader purpose of like the, um, the candidate experience, like you, you just described it with that story. Um, and, and the data is there, you know, we know these things, so it's important. <laughs> um, and so remind me the name of that company you were working at that you started with that you met your co-founder with. Yeah. Tiny pulse, tiny pulse. So is that what, so that was like an HR startup type situation. Yeah. Yeah. So I, when I left Microsoft, I, you know, I wanted, before I dove into my own thing, I wanted to work at a, a high growth HR tech startup and had an awesome opportunity there. Um, so yeah, they're focused on employee engagement. So nothing to do with hiring um, per se, but it really, helped me realize that a lot of engagement culture starts with with hiring um but yeah i spent a couple mm. years there and it was a great great experience when i was talking earlier about um movement and being okay with people leaving i, I remember in my interview at tiny pulse with their ceo david knew he you know asked me what i want to do next and i told him i eventually want to start my own company so i basically had given two year notice um but but he the mm. company supported me and others in and, you know, preparing them for that next step in their career, which was really, really important to me, um, you know, for companies to do that and have your career in mind. So, yeah. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, did you, so you went into that role knowing that you had the plan to, to start something on your own. And, and that must have been an important element of choosing that role was saying, what can I learn here? Was that true? Were you saying, how can I learn from this high growth startup because I want to start my own? Was that part of it? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the best, the best way to always, you know, get your next opportunities to do a really good job at, at the current one. So, you know, I was heads down focused, um, but I did know in the back of my mind that the experience I was getting there, um, even if I was focused very much on the, the, that job and the task at hand, I, I certainly wanted to pick a company that I knew would teach me these things where, you know, I'd learn what it was like to work at a company that's venture backed with, you know, a board of directors and how that all worked and learn more about the kind of investment landscape or product mm -hmm. development at scale. So yeah, I definitely picked that opportunity um, because I knew that if I did a really good job there, I would um, by virtue of that, learn what, the, get the tools in place that I needed for the next job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, and so let's move into that next step. Once you, once you started creating, um, the humanly product, what, at what point did, did you start to look for that, um, those, those venture partnerships or that first round of investing? And can you take me through that timeline a little bit? Yeah, so um, let's see. So if I go back to um, 2019, so the beginning of 2019 is kind of when we were 
um, building the product and thinking through that stuff, I was still at Tiny Pulse. Um, so I uh, talked to my manager there as well as, as the CEO and said, hey, you know, I, um, I think I want to do this thing, but I want to exit in the right way. Can I move into more of an individual contributor role um, and kind of step down from the leadership role? Um, so, so yeah, they, they gave me that opportunity and I, I was able to kind of transition in a way that I think was good for the company. And, um, and, and then, you know, July is when I eventually uh, left um, um, full-time um, to Humanly. Before we got investment or before we started pitching, I wanted to uh, begin to uh, get, um, you know, make sure we get do our customer research and know that we're building the right thing. So before we spend any money uh, or uh, before we spend money or, or even invest more time. So just did a bunch of research at the mm -hmm. beginning. Um, uh, I have a spreadsheet where, you know, we interviewed, I think maybe like 60 people that were in the recruiting space and, you know, we list out what their top pain point is, what, um, you know, what, what are, what, what are the kind of demographical piece of information about them that we can learn from. And we, that's mm. how we kind of came up with, Hey, there's something here for mid market, high volume. Um, and then started raising money at the end of that year. But we, we got into, um, the Y Combinator Accelerator. So we said, hey, you know, we're going to learn a ton at Y Combinator. Um, let's just pause fundraising and, and do this first. So we did that. And then we completed our, our round of seed funding after that. Cool. And yeah, Y Combinator, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's the most famous accelerator and, and for good reason. Um, how was that experience? How was, um, how did it benefit you? Yeah, it was a great experience. I think um, it was somewhat unique because uh, COVID happened. So it was um, January uh, um, through March, we were in the program and COVID hit kind of towards the tail end of it. So um, I, I think the team there did an awesome job adjusting it. And now in the new cohorts, they're um, planning remote from the beginning. So it's a little bit easier versus we, we were kind of getting transitioned right before demo day. Um, wow. Ended up actually... Yeah, ended up working out really well, though. Um, I found that, you know, if you are, if you're presenting to investors, and you don't have to drive to their office, find parking, um, remember to bring your, uh, your uh, adapter on your, remember to bring your charger on your computer, mm -hmm. all that, you don't have to worry about that, you can do like 30 call, or maybe not 30, but let's see, I'd probably do like 15 in pitches in a day versus uh, three or something like that. Um, mm with all that driving. So, so I think in that way you can, um, it, it, the remote uh, engagement makes a lot of sense, but you do miss out on some things as well. But, but Y Combinator overall, if, when you ask kind of what we got out of it, um, the network is, it's amazing. It's like a, a gift that doesn't stop giving. And, and you can say the same, of course, for other accelerators. Um, but, um, you know, I, every day I'm, I'm messaging in the WhatsApp channel or Slack channel if we're hiring or if I need help mm -hmm. with something. Um, we have a designer looking for additional work. So I posted a post there recently. Um, so I think the net network was big. Um, the, the structure in, in helping you determine how to find out product market fit and building something that people love and want to use. I think that was, uh, there's a lot of learnings. And, and then just, you know, some execution oriented things. So how do you build a scalable outbound sales team? So some of that stuff was, was also really useful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, and this is like, cause that last interview I did, I, I was talking with um, a general partner at a venture capital firm and, and I'm just, I'm really exploring with this show, just the whole startup landscape and all the moving parts. And I've learned so much. Um, and, and I want to, see if I can get something out of you here, some perspective here. Um, how do you, and, and I know like, well, you can answer this in any way you want. What do you think the relationship should be between, um, between venture capital and the founders and how involved are the people funding you um, with your process? Um, do you think that hands-on or hands-off, so to speak, would be the the better relationship there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, 
So it, it really does depend. I, part of it is kind of the stage you're at. Um, so and, and the type of investor. So is it, you know, more as an angel investor um, early on? Is it, um, you know, maybe it's Series A, uh, um, a VC firm? Um, some of that. So so I think generally you have to have that conversation with, with the investor and, and make sure that the balance is right. Um, some investors want to be more involved. Others others don't. Um, and then others can help you in in strategic ways. Um, um, that, that some can and some cannot. Um, so I think just making sure you've set that expectation up front. And most investors are pretty um, honest with you about what their philosophy is when it comes to that. Um, so one example, and, and, then, and then some of it is also like a negotiation. And so if it's a Series A, they might place someone on your board. And by being on your board, they are, you know, they formally have, have rights um, and, you know, will be at board meetings and whatnot. So there's kind of the formal aspect and then the informal. I found generally... Um, you know, it, when you have strategic investors that have a lot of domain experience, so maybe one that's in the recruiting space, um, or you know, you know, we have um, a few of those. I, I think, you know, when they can help you, and um, that's that's great, and that 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 is worth the time. When it's more just wanting to like look over your shoulder and and check in on you that that probably means you're not either not doing a good enough job communicating as a founder when you're not sending mm. monthly updates or you're not having efficient board meetings or or maybe you have an investor just as a personality like that and yeah luckily we've never had any any issues where we have people that are you know monitoring us and stuff like that but but i but i do think you can figure that out because it really is an interview process you want to make sure that they're a good fit for what you need on your organization um and there are some that might be more more micromanagers than others. Mm -hmm. Do you have any leadership advice um, as a founder who is, you know, riding the you are you are doing the fast growth startup? You just you went through Y Combinator and things are moving quick. What do you recommend for people um, who are trying to develop their leadership skills and what prepared you for this, if anything at all? Yeah, no, I think um, I'll probably misquote this, but uh, Reed, Reed Hoffman um, um, LinkedIn from LinkedIn um, said that, you know, this, this startup is, I, th I think he said it's like jumping off a plane and then, um, and then assembling a parachute on the way down. Um, so it's really like, you're not, not really uh prepared I think for mm. a lot of things so um, I, I think what what you do in those situations where you are unprepared is I think important so how can you maximize how much you learn through each new thing or through each mistake so how do you optimize for learning um, I, I think that that's one thing I can say um, you know I think there's a lot of there's some elements of of, of founding a startup that you can, of course, educate yourself on. So like the mechanics of cap table management or, um, you know, how, how do you use a convertible note or a safe in, in terms of investment vehicles. So there's a lot of material out there and, and Y Combinator, Techstars, a lot of them have made a lot of this stuff public as well. That So you don't have to actually go through the program to mm -hmm. have access to these uh, resources. So, so there's that stuff that you and just learn through reading, through talking to people. I, I do find that, you know, one thing that was really hard at first is just knowing um, you, you'll get a lot, a lot of advice. So just knowing, um, taking everything with a grain of salt, because you might hear, mm. it might be someone that's extremely successful. So you just assume they're right, but they're might not be, they might not have context about your business. So I think, um, and you'll hear different advice from different people. Um, so I think mm. being able to manage what you do with advice you get, um, optimize for learning as you go forward, are kind of two things. And then another thing I'd just say is like, just don't ever be afraid to start on things. I find out there's so much like analysis paralysis where people don't do anything because they are just waiting for the perfect idea or perfect feature or um so yeah like the, the quote perfection is the enemy of of great or something like that so i, I think um i do think uh, th those are some of the things um the other ways to learn um you know i think in taking information whether it's through reading or listening to podcasts or um you know, talk, talking to other founders. So building a network, I think is really important. Um, so you can join like a CEO group where someone might say um, something like, uh, how do we 
um, get approved for a PPP loan or something like that. A lot of the stuff that hits you as a founder, because you're, it, when you're doing the act of innovating, you're naturally going to be encountering things that other people might have not before or quite in that, in that way before. So, you know, I think having a network to address things as they come up sometimes is mm. more powerful than, than, than over preparing before they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I have people, you know, in my network or even on Instagram, you see content. There's, there's this whole idea of like, um, this, there's this new kind of entrepreneurial sort of, sort of, I would say thought sphere. And it's really centered around like really working really, really hard. And a lot of those core values, which, um, are very important. And so, my question to you is like, like when I talk to you, you feel so alive. Okay. You know, like you're smiling, you're happy. Like it seems good. And is it passion that, that makes you happy to do all this? And that's what helps you lift things off the ground or, or, or how, what do you say about the people or the, this idea of, of sort of the grind and really kind of gritting your teeth and, and pushing through something and, and suffering in other ways because of it, because, and, and the whole balance of, of our pursuits and then also sort of um, managing how you feel throughout the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, coffee helps with a lot of that. It's, I think maybe that's why, <laughs> that, that's why I look so alive. Um, but, but I, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question. Um, and I, I do think sometimes people get, caught up in this uh, hustle culture of, you know, work, sometimes it can lead to, you know, hard work for the sake of hard work and having that kind of greater, greater um, mission at, at play is, is always good and helps you find that balance. Um, so wh- whatever that reason is, I think just really um, holding it um, tightly and, and reminding yourself of it is, is important. Um, mm. And I don't think it's like, and and then yeah, I mean, it, working smart versus hard. I, I think there's a lot of ways if you spend a little bit more time planning, where you can realize you can get a lot more, a lot more stuff done than you might have thought. Whether it's you know using a tool that helps you become a little quicker, um, getting creative. Where you know I was talking to a founder that has a, a virtual assistant that handles a lot of her email. Um, so I think um, finding those ways to optimize and save time, and then and then also be okay with not always working, which, which is hard for a lot of people to do in this stage. But mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, I appreciate that notion. Um, and, you know, with, with Purpose Innovates, I'm really, I'm trying to ask the question about that broader mission. Um, and I applaud you for that. I really applaud you for having that and, and mentioning that that's a part of the process for you, because to me, we are, this is this, this brilliant problem solving machine, this startup ecosystem that I'm exploring. It's, um, it's this amazing, amazing thing. And I applaud you for having that question of, you know, what is the mission here? And I think that's what this show is, is really seeking is a conversation about that. And is there anywhere people can reach you if you um, on social media or LinkedIn, or if, if someone wants to talk, where, where should they, where should they reach you? Yeah, yeah. So LinkedIn's good. Um, Twitter as well. I'm probably more active on LinkedIn. Um, Twitter, it's uh, my first name, last name, tweets, uh, Supreme Kumar tweets. Um, And then um, you can also email me. It's just my first name at humanly.io. Well, thank you so much. Cool. Thank you, Chris.